All right. Amen. Mic check. There we go. Beautiful. We're glad you're here. Again, my name is Clint. If you're a visitor, glad that you've joined us this morning. Pray for me as I hold a handheld mic and preach God's word to you. Uh, Let's pray again. Let's ask for the Lord's help. And we're going to jump into uh, what Exodus chapter 20, and particularly the second commandment, teaches us. So bow again and pray with me. Father, we come to you through Christ our Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit, asking, do what no man can do. Transform us. Conform us to the image of Christ. Give us faith to believe. Give us the will to obey. Give us hearts to love you and neighbor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sincerity doesn't guarantee fidelity. A sincere heart in worship doesn't guarantee faithfulness in worship. To be clear, sincerity is required, it's, but it's not sufficient to determine faithfulness. You can be sincere and wrong. In a culture like ours that prioritizes authenticity, it may come as a shock to the system But did you know that it's very possible to worship the one true God in a wrong way? To be very sincere about worship of the one true God, the right God, but to be doing it in the wrong way. It's possible to be authentic and idolatrous in worship. Again, sincerity doesn't guarantee fidelity. I'm going to give you a story, a disaster, a nightmare of every pastor I know. A number of things are difficult about being a pastor, but one of the things that make most pastors most nervous is officiating weddings. I have a a, a pastor friend who's actually got a pretty, uh, well, an acquaintance, uh, another friend of a friend. Pretty big platform. Uh, Many of you probably listen to, study, read his books, listen to podcasts, a number of other things, so I'm not going to say his name, but I'm going to tell you a funny story and massive error that he committed one time in in ways that uh, conjure up the nightmares of all pastors. He was doing a wedding, officiating a wedding. He was very close with the groom. He knew the bride-to-be. But as he's officiating this wedding, he refers to the bride by the name of the groom's ex-girlfriend. Oh, See? That's a nightmare. (laughs) You see it. In this moment. Now, to be clear, he's sincere. (laughs) He loves her. He loves the groom. He's sincere and sincerely wrong. (laughs) There's no question he's made a grievous error. Now, his heart didn't mean to make the error, but he's made an error nonetheless. Everybody there, I promise you the bride is aware he's sincere and wrong. (laughs) The groom is totally aware that he's sincere and wrong. So we have a category for being able to be sincere and wrong. But I don't think we think often about could we be sincere and wrong in our worship of God. You can be authentic and idolatrous. You can go to God, worship the one true God, but do so in a wrong way. We know this is possible because God saw fit to address this in the reality of the second commandment. Last week we began our study in the Ten Commandments, and more accurately the Ten Words, the Decalogue, by considering the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And we got to look and think about briefly just our relationship between the first and second commandment because they're clearly related to one another closely. The first commandment's about ultimate allegiance, that God is not interested in second place nor in sharing first place. He alone is God, and therefore he alone must be your God. He must be your ultimate and unquestioned allegiance. 
Other gods are only and merely so-called gods. They're not real gods. They're fake gods. They do not exist and not worthy of our allegiance. Our allegiance belongs to Yahweh alone through Christ our Lord. So the first commandment is about not worshiping the wrong God. And since that's the case, we talked last week about idolatry because inevitably, if you do not worship the right God, the one true God, you will turn and worship a false God. You are a worshiper. You're built to worship. You will worship. And if you don't worship the true God, you'll turn to a false God. So we talked last week about idolatry. The second commandment, again, is closely related, but you'll notice a minor difference. It's not merely about not worshiping the wrong God. It's also about not worshiping the right God in the wrong way. We see in this commandment, God not only forbids worship of false so-called gods, but he also forbids not worshiping the right God in, again, the wrong way. He's not interested in false and wrong worship. And therefore, what we see is that the people of God are not to make idols to represent God because God is a jealous God who will faithfully bring justice to idolaters and distribute mercy to the faithful. We must not worship him wrongly. In this case, again, what he will show with idols. So if you want a title this morning, perhaps a pretty provocative one. Second commandment, don't worship like a pagan. The second commandment, don't worship like a pagan. I want to ask and answer three simple questions this morning. Number one, what does the second commandment forbid? Number two, what is the second commandment? Uh, why does the second commandment forbid? And then number three, how does Jesus fulfill and transform the second commandment? So let's take each of those questions. First, what does the second commandment forbid? Look again, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Very simply, the second commandment forbids idolatrous representations of God. So notice he says, do not make any likeness out of anything in creation to bow down and serve. It's a clear prohibition, as the old King James said, to make any graven images, any carved images to represent the one true God. Anything representing Yahweh. So he says, don't make anything out of something in heaven, something on earth, or something in the sea. So not above the earth, not on the earth, not under the earth. Don't look anywhere in the earth. Find an object and think that's a good object to carve and create and make to represent Yahweh so that when we worship Yahweh, we'll use this object. This is what he's forbidding. Men are not to worship God with any man-made idol. Similarly, Moses warns in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, watch yourselves very clear, carefully. Since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, in the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now at first glance, we might look at this and think it seems kind of silly that God would have to forbid his people from making carven images to worship him. Why would he have to prohibit his people from making statues and bowing down to them? That might seem to us silly. But we need to understand context. His people were coming out of Egypt and headed into Canaan, both of which, like the rest of ancient Near Eastern cultures, almost always created idols that they would bow down to, idols that at least and at minimum represented their gods, but often they would say were inhabited by their gods. 
Their gods and idols almost always were associated with some act of creation or some part of creation. We saw that in Egypt when we saw the plagues. These different idols that were toppled were idols that were associated with particular animals and aspects of creation. Therefore, the people of God, having spent 400 years in bondage in Egypt and on their way to the promised land, needed to understand that their instincts and their intuitions were shaped by their surrounding culture. And their surrounding cultures built and bowed down to idols that represented their gods. So it's not silly. 400 years they've been with people who made idols to represent their gods to worship. They're headed into a pagan land that will represent and build gods and idols to worship their gods. So he understands you're in the culture you're in, and you're going to be tempted to worship me the way they worship their false gods. Exodus chapter 32 and the experience with the golden calf that we referenced last, last week as well. We see this temptation was real and that Israel succumbed sinfully to this temptation. They're at the base of the mountain again. Moses is going back up to meet with God. And they get impatient. They're tired of waiting. And they're like, we're not waiting on Moses. We need to have a sacrificial meal. We need to have worship. And so let's come up with a plan to do this. And so they tell Aaron, we want to worship. We want to have a God to bow down to. And what do they do? They say, craft for us an idol. Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. Aaron received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to who? The Lord, Yahweh. So they make this golden calf as a means of worshiping Yahweh. So they haven't abandoned Yahweh. So they're not saying there's another God, but they're saying, no, no, no. But we're going to form this golden calf to worship Yahweh among the other gods. They're reverting to their cultural instincts. They made a graven gold image of a calf to worship Yahweh. They broke the second commandment. Therefore, the second commandment forbids bowing down and serving idols they made with their own hands as a custom of their surrounding culture. Now, to be clear, idols, statues, art on display in this moment as an act of worship or even in their mind is something that they're being forbidden from doing. Yahweh has revealed himself on this mountain. He's spoken. His word is to be heard, to be believed, and to be obeyed. They're not to fashion some visual Im image or demonstration of him to worship as a way to substitute for seeing him. They're not to see him at this moment. They're to hear him and to believe his word and to obey him. Now, this clearly does not condemn all art in the form of pictures. And so even you start thinking about art and artistic expression. We know in Exodus chapter 31 that, that God is literally going to say, no, no, I've given my spirit uniquely to people who artists who are going to do things in the tabernacle and later in the temple, carved images and on the priest's robes and like artistic expressions are going to happen. And God's going to say, I gave my spirit to accomplish that. So he's not forbidding all art, but he's saying, hey, there can't be a statue that represents me that you're worshiping and bowing down to as if my presence is uniquely in that place in that statue. And friends, I want to submit to you this morning that we aren't better than Israel. Let us beware that we're not guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That we look back and we say, Israel is so silly. Why would they need a command not to bow down to a statue? That's foolish. Is it? Our culture around us, by and large, is not creating statues as forms of worship. So that's not a temptation for you. Which is why you think, maybe at first glance, that seems foolish. But when it comes to issues of sexuality, 
issues of gender, of power, of pleasure, of comfort, of control. Do we not see idols in culture that people are saying, this defines me, this is what matters most, this is what I'll give my life to, and then are we not tempted to bow down to those same idols? Do we not have a, a current church culture full of Christian celebrities? Where do you think that comes from? We live in a culture and a place that loves to put someone up front and bow down and worship them as a celebrity. Go to a concert, go to a, a sports game. People love celebrities. Do we look at the church and not see the same problem? Paul did in Corinthians. That's why he had to address it in Corinthians. We're tempted by the idols of our surrounding culture, just like Israel was. And we are not to understand and come and approach, uh, come to God and worship God in our natural cultural instincts, but according to his word. So it matters how we worship God. So my question to you this morning might be this. If you were the enemy of your soul, what cultural idols would you tempt you with to bow down to and dupe you into thinking you were actually bowing down to God? If you were Satan, if you were a demon studying you and trying to get you away from God, what idol would you tempt you with to make you think you're serving God, but in fact you were serving an idol? This is what's going on in Israel. This is a temptation for all of us even today. We cannot make idols. We cannot worship God falsely. God forbids that in the second commandment. Now, our second question is, why does God forbid this? So clearly he forbids, don't make idols, don't make statues, don't be like surrounding culture, don't approach me the same way. Don't think my presence is dwelling in something you made with your hands. Don't gain all your religious values and convictions from people around you. Go to, the, go to my word. Why? Why does God forbid this? Look at the second part of verse 5. Four purpose clause <laughs> coming. So I've just told you not to do this, and now I'm telling you why. For I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, Elohim. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I see at least three reasons in this text that God forbids us making idols to bow down and worship and serve. Reason number one, to protect his people from his jealous wrath. Reason number two, to protect his people from generational idolatry. And reason number three, to protect his people for generational blessing. So look at these three reasons. I just want you to see this in the text. First, to protect people from his jealous wrath. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Remember, the creation is trembling in the middle of this conversation. They're on Mount Sinai, they're hearing, the, the, the mountain is enveloped in the cloud of smoke, crashes of thunder, flashes of lightning, the presence of God speaking, they're trembling, the, all the people of Israel trembling, the mountain itself is trembling because there's a holy and righteous God speaking to sinful people. And there's boundaries drawn on the mountain, don't come too close lest you die. Like God is a holy God, you can't just step into his presence any old way you want to. Not when you're sinful. And so remember kind of the weightiness of this moment that God is speaking, that his people are gathered, that there is a great trembling. But he's also merciful. He set them free. He endured stubborn Israel's stubbornness in Egypt, then in the wilderness. And he set them free by his grace and his mercy because he's loving and he's kind. He's already saved them by his grace. And now he's giving them his law as a means for them to live in this new life, this new covenant relationship with himself. And so we've been talking about this in our study in the last couple of weeks. He's more holy than we realize. 
And he's more merciful than we realize. There is no God like him. He has no rivals, no equals. He's destroyed the false gods of Egypt. He's commanded them to have no other gods. And now he commands them not to make some idol with their hands to bow down and serve and represent him. Why? For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That's why. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. God is a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. He will not allow deaf, dumb, and mute idols that are not worthy to steal his glory. He will not let deaf, let deaf dumb, and mute idols steal the affection of his people. Now, when we hear jealous, we often think like insecure and foolish people in actions. That's not the jealousy of God. So when it says he's a jealous God, don't think a sinful human being throwing a tantrum because they're insecure and jealous. That's not God. God is righteous. He's pure. He's just. His jealousy is an entire different category of what you would naturally think. One commentator says it like this, godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love, like a mother's jealous protection of her children, a father's jealous guarding of his home. Go back to my opening illustration. No one would question the husband in that situation if he corrected the pastor and said, hey, that's not my wife's name. It's not my fiance's name at this point. No one would get upset like, why in the world did you just talk to that pastor and tell him that's the wrong name? Because of his jealous love for his bride. Because he loves his wife. So it's not inappropriate to be jealous in that sense. That's actually his love and affection protecting her. And that jealousy is an expression of that love and affection and protection. Christopher Wright says jealousy is God's love protecting itself. God alone is worthy of ultimate allegiance. God alone is worthy of worship. He is worthy of having his righteous wrath satisfied. He's worthy of having his loving mercy distributed. And he will not allow his love to be stolen by some dumb idol that does not hear your prayers and does not care about you. He's a jealous God. You will worship him and you will experience his love. Not some false idol that's not worthy of your worship and that does not love you back. Also, worshiping idols lies about God's worth. Notice that. When we worship false gods that do not exist, we lie about the one true God. He lies about the jealousy he has for his great name and for the good and glory of his beloved people. He gives praise and honor and glory to things that do not deserve ultimate praise and honor and glory. Making idols to represent him shrinks him down and makes him tangible and controllable by us. Our little idols lie about who God really is. You can't bottle up the creator. Who do you think you are that you can find something in creation so that you might manipulate and control him? This is why we want idols, because then we can control them and treat them like, you know, like I want something, I ask you for it, give it to me, which actually puts us in the place of God and then God now in the place of creation that exists for us and our glory, not us for his glory. We exchange places with him. You can control and manipulate idols, but you can't control and manipulate Yahweh. Jen Wilkin, commenting on this as revealed in the golden calf incident, says this. The image lies about who God truly is. Think about the enormity of the lie the golden calf tells. It is small, but God is immense. It is inanimate, but God is spirit. It is location bound, but God is everywhere, fully present. It is created, but God is uncreated. 
It is new, but God is eternal. It is impotent, but God is omnipotent. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees, hears, and speaks. Idols defame his name by lying about him and by destroying those who look to them. The psalmist captures this. The psalmist captures why it provokes God's jealous wrath. Psalm 119. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast or your covenant love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they, cannot, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Friends, you become like that which you behold. You worship a false god who's blind and deaf and mute. Spiritually, you will be blind and deaf and mute. You will be dumb. You will not be able to speak anything from or of God. This command protects God's people from his jealous wrath that we deserve. But secondly, this command protects God's people from generational idolatry. So again, he says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, or as the CSB says, bringing the consequences of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, at first glance, you might read this and think God is saying he will bring eternal judgment on children for their parents' sin and rebellion against God. That's not the case in the immediate context, nor in the rest of Scripture. First, in the immediate context, notice who God will visit the iniquity upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who what? Who hate me. So he qualifies. No, no, no. You reject me. You break me. You, you worship false idols. Three and four generations from now will also hate me, reject me, and worship false idols. Those third and fourth generations will hate Yahweh. So they're not innocent children being eternally punished for the sins of their fathers. They are God-haters who will be under the wrath of God for their own sin. That was taught to them and modeled for them from their parents. Second also, that no, notice that Moses makes it clear this is not some generational curse that's beyond repentance and salvation. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. The prophet Ezekiel says the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, or nearly the same thing. So it's a good question then to ask, okay, but what, what does it mean that he will visit the iniquities of the parents on the third and fourth generation? Again, I think the CSB translation brings, uh, brings it to bear pretty well when it says bring the consequences. Mothers and fathers who bow to the culturally common idolatrous practices of their surrounding culture push their children further from God. Parents, you may say one thing to your children. But rest assured, your children are watching who you bow the knee to and serve. You may say you worship Jesus, but if your children see you bow the knee to politics or sports or culture or entertainment or your screens or your ethnicity or your gender or your sexual pleasure or your education or your financial success or your power or comfort or safety, don't be surprised if they leave your home and walk away from Jesus and towards that which you bow down to. They're more likely to follow the God you praised and bowed the knee to than they are the God you merely gave lip service to. 
Because, friends, this is true of all human beings. The sinful human heart doesn't drift towards God. It must be drawn to him. It's not natural for the human being to run towards and after God. Ultimately drawn by his spirit, but practically through the witness of his people. So God the Spirit must draw people unto himself and to repentance. But he does so through his people, through his word, through the proclamation of the gospel. Naturally, the human heart hates God. We reject him and we replace him with the idols of our choice. God gives us over to those idols and those idols destroy us. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. Go read it. That's the logic. That you say to God, I see in creation there's a creator. I know there's a creator. I know I'm accountable to him. I just sense that because I'm made in his very image. I suppress that truth. I reject that truth. And I turn to false gods and those false gods end up destroying me. And not only do I do all that, but I give approval to other people who do it too. Because then that makes me feel a little less guilty. This is the logic of Romans 1. This is the logic of the sinful human heart. So again, parents, your children, they're listening to your words and watching your lives. That's why even in worship, when it's difficult, kids are making noise, we think it's worth it. They're seeing you worship the Lord Jesus in song, by sitting under the word, in prayer. They watch your life. They care. They, they're looking at you. They're listening to what you're saying, but they're watching how you're living. It matters. There's generational impact on whether or not you believe and live this out. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 18, 6, with a child in his midst. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Parents, if your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren follow the God you confess and bow to right now, will they follow the one true God or an idol? So the generations coming from you, if they follow the God you bow to, whom will they follow? Your worship sets a trajectory of the generations to come. Will they be drawn to God or drift further away because of your witness? And even King's Cross. Will the churches that we plant and partner with worship the right God the right way? The right God the wrong way? Or the wrong God in any way? And future generations will be judged based on their hatred of God and their faith or not in Jesus. But will our witness help our physical and spiritual great-great-grandchildren, or will it hurt? The second commandment protects us from God's jealous wrath and generational idolatry. Thirdly, the, the second commandment protects his people for generational blessing. Look at verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now notice this curse of generational idolatry was to the third and fourth generation. But when God comes to his covenant faithful blessings, it's to thousands. And in the text, it's probably referring to thousands of generations, not thousands of individuals, but thousands of generations. So he's like, no, no, look, you rejecting and building these false gods three or four generations worth. But listen, my faithful covenant love, thousands of generations. Remember what he said to Abraham when he took him out and made this covenant. Look at the stars of the sky. Count them. <laughs> Good luck. But so will your descendants be. Because of my covenant faithfulness. You believe me, it's counted to, righteous, to you as righteousness, and the nations will be blessed through Abraham and now on to this moment in Israel. And again, remember the ground of the Ten Commandments to begin with in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you, rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. So he's already set them free. He's already by his grace rescued and chosen and made them his holy people to represent him in the land, in the nations, 
He's already done that by grace, and now he's demonstrating and showing. So parents, point your kids to Christ with your lips and with your lives positively. King's Cross, let's think about Let people see you worship privately and corporately. Parents, let your children see you apologize and confess and repent when you sin. Let them see you uh, cling to Christ in good times and in bad let them see you live counterculturally committed to the local church. Let them see you lean on a faith family when you're struggling and ask for help and humbly being carried along by brothers and sisters when you can't even walk yourself. Let them see. Point them to the covenant blessings of Christ. King's Cross, let us raise up and send out as many pastors, church plants, campus ministers, women's ministry leaders, missionaries, deacons, and servants of Christ as we can by letting them watch our life and doctrine closely. So therefore, let us make sure we're worshiping the one true God rightly. Right God, right worship. God promises to bless future generations through our witness. Jonathan and the worship team, make sure we're thinking well about what we sing and how we sing it. Worshiping the right God in the right way. As Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why does God command we not make idols to represent him? To protect us from his jealous wrath. To protect us from generational idolatry. And to protect us for generational blessing. But lastly, our last question, how does Christ fulfill and transform this second commandment? How does Christ transform and fulfill this second commandment? We need to understand and we need to look at something that's really, really important in the second commandment, and the imago Dei, the Latin phrase that means the image of God. So one of the theological reasons that God forbade Israel from making anything in his likeness is he had already done that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Notice, above, on the earth, below the earth. Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over all of these things underneath the dominion of our triune God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. This is why we're to not make graven images out of things above, on, or beneath. Instead, we are to image forth, we are the image of God, the likeness of God, imaging forth what God is like on the earth. We don't need to make another image to see what God is like. He made us in his image to do that. Now, the bad news is we sinned. Our first parents fell. So the Imago Dei, the image of God, was distorted. It wasn't totally lost, but it was messed up. So now those who are made in his image to reflect and point to the triune glory of God, to reign and rule underneath the reign and rule of God, and demonstrate and show people this is what the glory of God is like, those who have now said, no, 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 I don't want you getting the glory. I want the glory. And so now the image of God, the Imago Dei in us all, is flawed, is messed up. Our great problem is the fall is distorted. The Imago Dei is distorted. One of the worst distortions and damages of the fall is that we return the favor to the God who made us in his image. One of the evidences you know you were made the image of God and yet sin destroyed that is you try to make God in your own image. So you suddenly start thinking, no, no, what is God like based on kind of how I feel and how I think? And surrounding culture around me, how it feels and how it thinks, now what do we think God is like in our image? 
Let me give an easy illustration of this. Listen, go to plenty of traditional white churches. See pictures of blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus. No biblical reason for that. Except the fall. And we like to make a God in our image that we can control like a little statue who's about our issues and what we want them to be. But just to be clear, one of my, the first church I preached at uh, growing up was actually an African-American church. And I remember going into an African-American church and seeing pictures of this really buff, big black Jesus. And I'm like, how'd this happen? Listen, if you're, you're in the black church and you've, you've watched blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, who's not biblical, and you tend to make the same error in sin, well, you make him in your image just like they made him in his. This is what sinners tend to do. I want to make God like me so I can control him and understand him and use him to do what I want to do. We're still prone to turn to the common cultural idols of our day. I don't care who you are or where you're from. The fallen nature of the fallen, I mean, the fallen nature of man means and tries to make God in our image, whatever that image we think is. So I want you to know Satan is pleased to give you an idol that makes you comfortable so long as it's not Jesus. If he can lure you with gender, with sexuality, with ethnicity, with culture, with power, with success, with prosperity, whatever he can use to get you away from Jesus, that's what he's going to use. And he will appeal to the thing you want most and say, hey, let me give that to you. Just don't go with him. Just don't let Jesus define you. Don't let him shape how you think about what's right and wrong. Follow anything but him. But there's good news. We're flawed. We're fallen image bearers made in the image of God. But this is the first way we see Jesus fulfill the second commandment. We're made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God par excellence. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 14, 9, Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Israel was made, was forbidden from making a false image to bow down and serve because the true image of God was going to bow down and serve and suffer and die for idolatrous sinners and bring them back to God. Just like idols were to be destroyed in Israel, the Son of God, the image of God, the perfect image of God was destroyed on Calvary's cross for idolatrous sinners to pay the punishment they deserve for breaking the second commandment, indeed, the first commandment. Our idols, friends, the good news this morning, is they were destroyed on Christ's cross in Calvary. Your idols were put to death on Calvary. And notice, not only is he the perfect image of God come to restore and save and be crushed for us, he fulfilled the law by not giving in to idolatry. Jesus never gave in to idolatry. Now listen, if you're Satan, number one, let me tell you a truth about Satan. He, he's not omnipresent, and he's not omnipotent. So he's not present all places at all times, and he's not all-powerful. He has a ton of power, and there's a lot of demons. And they've been studying human beings for millennia and figuring out how do you tempt them away from God. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of figuring out and studying human beings and how to tempt them to go with idols that will lead them away from God. So if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes to earth, and he's going to live, and Satan succeeded in tempting Adam and Eve, our first parents, to fall in the garden, you know good and well when Jesus shows up, Satan is not send, sending some delegate to him. Satan himself is going. 
And he's not coming with some garbage strategy. He's coming with everything they've learned from tempting human beings to make them fall. And he's going to go after the most strategic attack on the Lord Jesus. And what do we read in Matthew chapter 4 and elsewhere? In the temptation of Christ. Satan tempts Jesus fasting in the wilderness. Think Israel. Tempts him. The first temptation. What is it? I know you're hungry. I know you're fasting. I know your body, because you're truly, truly man, is hungry and wants physical pleasure, relief from the hunger pains that you have. I know you want to provide for yourself. You city stones, why don't you turn them to bread? Why don't you flex that godness just a little bit and feed yourself? Why don't you take care of that appetite? Why don't you give yourself some pleasure? So he comes in and he, he taps down into that idol of pleasure, of provision. And says, Jesus, would you fail? Would you, would you just give in to that pleasure? Not trust your father, not obey your father's word, but instead, would you give in to this idol? What does Jesus say? Man should not live by bread alone. Quotes the scriptures to him. Says, Mm-mm, man should not live. Israel might have grumbled and complained about bread in the wilderness. Not the true and better Israel. Not Jesus. Jesus said, Mm-mm, I will not. Quote scripture. Satan goes back to the drawing board. All right, what next? What other idols could I try to go at? Takes him up to a high temple. Takes him up to the temple and says, why don't you throw yourself down? For the scriptures, says he, he will send his angels concerning you. So, so at this point now, what's he tempted? What is Satan tempting Jesus with in this moment, trying to? He's saying, no, no, no. Does God really love you? Will he really protect you? I couldn't get you with pleasure and, and provision. What about protection? What about security? Does God care enough to save you if you throw yourself off this temple? Make God prove that he actually loves you and cares about you and will take care of you and will protect you. Jesus says, no, no, no. The scripture says you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan, back to the drawing board. All right, pleasure didn't work. Provision for himself didn't work. Protection and security didn't work. What's the last temptation he comes to the Lord Jesus with? Takes him up on a high mountain and says, look, look at the whole world. You see all these kingdoms? I've got, a, I've got an authority over this, delegated by God. I've got an authority over this. You can have them all right now if you'll bow down and worship me. If you'll just bow down and worship Jesus, you can avoid the cross. You don't have to suffer and die under the wrath of God. You can have power right now. You can be worshipped right now. You can skip the hard part and get all the glory and power and have all this kingdom right now without going through what your father has told you to go through. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus will not go around the cross to get to the crown. He refuses to bow down and worship a false god or to worship the true God falsely. First commandment, no gods, fulfilled. Second commandment, no graven images. Even if that image is Satan, one with real power, doesn't give into it, fulfilled. He worshiped the right God, the right way, as the God-man, our substitute and Savior. The very image of God, perfectly revealing and perfectly fulfilling the law's demands. So today, we hear and we see by faith. Notice, we see by hearing. We hear the word of the gospel, and that opens our eyes to faith and trust in the word made flesh Faith in the one who didn't break the first or second commandment, but instead fulfilled them perfectly in our place. We don't need a graven image of God. We don't need to see to believe. 
For God has opened our eyes by faith and revealed Jesus, and he's the one that the law drives us to, the Savior who saves us from our law-breaking, the Savior who fulfills the law for us in our place, the Savior who rises from the grave, demonstrating he's paid it in full. Jesus really did pay it all, so I really am set free. The law has been fulfilled in my place for me by Christ. He gets the glory. I get the pleasure and joy, and now I follow him by faith. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is what compels us on the missionary task preaching the word we don't have to go demonstrate like we don't have to like try to entertain people into the kingdom that's not what saves people the gospel word is people hear they repent and they believe and they're saved forever and then they tell other people and they repent and believe and they're saved forever and this community continues to grow even amidst and being a counterculture in the midst of a lost and dying world the apostle paul second corinthians chapter four said therefore having this ministry by the mercy of god we do not lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Non-Christian friend, hear and see. Trust and believe. Jesus fulfilled all of the law's demands on your behalf, though you've broken them and could never fulfill them. He suffered and died and took the punishment for all of the law-breaking that you have committed in your heart, in your mind, in your emotions, in your actions. And he freely offers his righteous record and gladly takes your sinful place. Jesus really did pay it all. Would you look to Christ today? Would you put your faith in him, repent and believe, ask us for help, help uh, let us help you walk with him and you help us walk with him until our faith becomes sight. Christian, are you discouraged and broken because you see so many examples of idolatry in your heart and in your life? Well, then I close with this quote from Robert Murray McShane. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. I want to read it in context, but I want you to hear that when we get to it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and for all for sinners, even the chief Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Every look at yourself. Take ten at Christ. He fulfilled the law. Walk with him humbly by the Spirit in community. Don't make any images. He don't need it. He's too beautiful. Let's worship the Lord Jesus. Non-Christian friend, would you join us even following Christ? Let's bow and pray.